Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. Jeff Tweedy is frontman of the formative rock group Wilco, as well as a solo artist and leader of the group Tweedy. He's also a best-selling author, and his latest book, World Within a Song, was one of Pitchfork's favorites of 2023. Features editor Jill Mapes wrote, the book allows Tweedy to go full nerd, not as a tangent to a story, but as the story itself. The effect is something like a book-length version of Pitchfork's own 5, 10, 15, 20 interview series, where stray memories become reflexively intertwined with certain lyrics or melodies. For this week's show, Jeff was interviewed by Pitchfork's Sam Sadomsky. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Thanks so much for talking about the book. I really loved reading it, and I found it to be a really inspiring and uplifting book. And something I thought was especially refreshing was how much you focus on the magic of listening to music as opposed to focusing on the artists. Like even a section on a more obscure band like Sold American, I loved that you put us in the audience at one of their shows to help explain (laughs) your relationship with them. I was curious how intentional that was to write about listeners as opposed to writing about artists. I think that was a conscious decision. It was kind of like the counterpart to how to write one song in a way. I think the book was somewhat conceived as not as how to listen to one song, but kind of, you know, (laughs) I think you could make the argument that that's the overall premise. But mostly I'm just trying to be honest about the thing that has probably sustained me the most in my life, and that is records and listening to songs and and my passion for other people's music. You know, people assume that an artist is defined by their own work. And I feel like I'm, (laughs) I'm a better listener than an artist. And that's probably what has allowed me to be an artist. I think that the fact that the music has to be put together in another consciousness and that that's a collaboration by definition has been kind of overlooked and underappreciated for a long time. It's generally not really talked about that way. Mm. How do you feel like writing prose has affected that relationship with your subconscious or the creativity you tap into when you're writing music? Has doing something more elaborate and more personal, like in the most literal sense, has that affected how you look at the more mysterious creative process? Um, when I was writing the first book that I wrote, I really felt like I was learning how to write prose and I'd always been a little terrified of it for whatever reason. It just wasn't something I felt confident about. 
And as I kind of taught myself how to write prose for the memoir, I did notice that an effort to be kind of clear in a way that I would never would try to be in songwriting, you know, like really concise and clear, simple language. I wasn't trying to like revolutionize literature. I just wanted it to sound like me. So I read out loud a lot. And around that same time, I wrote a lot of songs for my solo records that tended to reflect a little bit more of that clarity, which I think is kind of hard to do. At least for me, I, I, I love language and I love abstraction and, and impressionism and getting people to see something that you didn't write is a beautiful experience. But yeah, I did learn a lot. I think it was more during the process of writing my memoir. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to the point about writing about listening and how listening makes you a better artist, I thought something that really stood out to me about this book was the way you delve into other people's listening habits. And one of the crucial sections of the book, you talk about someone you knew in Belleville named Terry, and you basically describe him as a quintessential music snob who is into very extreme, out-there music and... By the time anyone else can get into it, he's moved on to the complete opposite. And you close that section very ominously by saying, Terry is a dangerous person. I was curious if you can explain what you find dangerous about that type of snobbery or that exclusionary music taste. It's written in a funny way, and I think it is used to uh, just kind of illustrate an archetypal music snob. The way he, you're like, hey, I just got this... Uh, Nurse with Wound record, and he's like, oh, man, that is, oh, that is, like, that's last year, man. You got to check this, you know, it's pop music right now. I'm listening to nothing but Peter, Paul, and Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think what made that section so compelling to me was that it really illustrates how seductive that type of person is to a young person who's kind of sponge-like and is inclined to love as much music as possible because when you see someone who's passionate about something, you yourself want to hear it through their ears and bring it into your world. But I feel like it also is crucial in developing your own taste as a listener and an artist. But I feel like it introduces a theme of just your wariness to anything resembling like cool culture or snob culture. You get into it a little bit in the sections on The Clash and The Knack. But I was curious when you started feeling averse to the like club mentality or the cool mentality and how you developed a canon that was kind of ancillary to that? Well, I mean, answering that question is a little bit self-serving. If I act as if that was some sort of conscious choice, but I think that the reality of it probably is, it was more a reaction to not being included in that club. (laughs) I was just like never going to be included in that club. I didn't know where to get the clothes for it. I was not fastidious enough about my appearance. I mean... It takes a lot of work to put on that kind of show for the world of your own, like, hipness. (laughs) I don't know. And then I guess getting to know a lot of other musicians and a lot of people and and the things that I liked about them were generally not the things that made them cool to a scene or something like that. And, I mean, early on in Uncle Tupelo, we were very clearly not going to be accepted by the fanzine set, the people writing for forced exposure, your flesh and things like that. Those magazines were pretty skeptical of our band. And we felt like outsiders, even in St. Louis, because we came from the other side of the river. We came from Belleville. So it's just, 
you know, if it had been in the cards for me to take a hold of that status as a cool kid, I would hope that I probably would have evolved to have the same kind of mentality about it. But it might have corrupted me. <laughs> it might have been too tempting. <laughs> yeah. Well, going off that note about the fanzine culture in the 90s, I also kind of want to talk about your relationship with music criticism. I was wondering if you could expand upon your relationship to the profession of music journalism and how that's evolved as your career has gone on. Yeah, I always kind of take that aphorism about, you know, music critics are frustrated musicians and turned it on its head when I think about my life, because I think I thought early on that that would be more attainable to me to write about music. So I tried my hand at writing for fanzines in St. Louis. And, and again, I was too lazy to do it correctly or with any success. I did do a bunch of interviews with different people that came through St. Louis. I interviewed Rain Parade. I interviewed Stiv Bader's, interviewed long riders soul asylum basically i tried to get free tickets to the shows and and there was a fanzine that would give me free tickets and i only think i completed maybe one or two of those assignments but i did get to hang out with those musicians so i would always joke that i tried to be a rock critic but i couldn't do it so i started a band (laughs) (laughs) but i like rock criticism i like when it's passionate and and it's in the spirit of the music that it's talking about. What don't you like? Well, I mean, I don't like snobbery. I don't like overly dismissive things. I think there's a lot of stuff in the world that probably doesn't need to be scrutinized and, and taken down a peg for basically no reason. You know, <laughs> like I, it's not like somebody's trying to pull one over on the world by putting out an independent record. And it can be really damaging. I don't think it's in the same spirit as the creation of the music in in a lot of cases. There's a lack of sensitivity to the fact that, you know, it's people trying their best. It's hard to do it well. I think it's really hard to do it well. And I think it's harder to do it well now than it was when I first started reading rock criticism. And when I first started reading rock criticism, it was more like real journalism because it was reporting on something that you couldn't see for yourself or hear for yourself in a lot of cases. And that that world doesn't really exist. So it's really, really heavily leans into opinion more than I think it needed to in the past. It could be about the person that was writing it. But that was more personal. It wasn't necessarily just like selling an opinion. I don't know. I still find myself learning a lot of stuff from reading. And I, I'm a consumer of a lot of rock writing or writing about music in general. Mm-hmm. And I love it when it's really illuminating and generous. But I, I kind of find that hard to find more so than I used to. Mm-hmm. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. A few years ago, we did this kind of experiment at Pitchfork where we rescored a bunch of albums, and it was kind of controversial. But when we did that list, I actually picked Sky Blue Sky, 
which is an album I really love and that existed very much outside what a lot of bands were doing at the time. And I think history has been really good to it. But writing that had me thinking about Wilco's relationship generally with the press and the industry. And it's kind of funny because you're a band who, what some people would call your masterpiece, was an album that was rejected by the label. <laughs> and I was curious if in order to sustain such like a consistent career, you've sort of had to dispense with the authority that you place in institutions like rock criticism or the establishment outside you and how steady that has been. I feel sorry for anybody who can't do that. I think you have to do that. I think you have to have a thick skin. I've lived long enough and made enough records to where I actually can kind of accurately predict that it's not going to get received as the thing that I think I made right away. And it generally changes over time. And I think that I've realized that that makes sense to me because most of the records I really, really love did not come to me in the time frame of their initial release and the first few weeks of their release. Most of my most cherished records came to me over decades and, and were maligned at the time. You know, it's just not the kind of thing that you can accurately weigh, except I guess, you know, you can weigh it in the current cultural climate. You can weigh it in a way that kind of illustrates where it fits into the lifestyle zeitgeist of the current moment. But I don't think you can anticipate what what the world is going to make of it. And I can't do that either. So I just try to make records I really like listening to. I love listening to the records that I make. And I love the process of making them. I make them to listen to. And I have to have faith that I'm not that strange. I'm not that weird. And if I really get into it, there's potentially somebody out there who will connect with it in a way that feels authentic to them. Mm. Yeah, I think your book does a really good job speaking to that mindset by including stuff that's all across the spectrum from things that are so hyper-specific to your background as a listener. You also write some passages in the book that I would categorize as being very realistic, very empathetic, almost like love songs, but in prose form. Um, thinking about the one you write about your mom with Lucky Number or with your wife Susie in I'm Into Something Good. I was curious about your feelings on what you can learn about someone through the songs they love and the things that people might not even realize they're communicating when they're talking about their taste in music. Your question touches on something that I hope that the book would communicate as a whole, and that is how strange it is and how powerful it is to play somebody a song that we love and feel vulnerable, even though we had nothing to do with the creation of it. You know, like how, how deeply a song by somebody else can feel like it's saying something that we can't say. People rely on songs for a lot of emotional communication. And that's one of the reasons that I think it's really hard to condemn music that has found a deep connection with a lot of people. You're rejecting a lot of people when you reject, say, something like Taylor Swift. <laughs> you know, or, or Bon Jovi. Exactly. Although Bon Jovi is objectively terrible, so I can't. <laughs> <laughs> As, I'm, I'm kidding again. That was obviously about me. You know, I'm not like really talking about Bon Jovi. I, hopefully in that chapter, I, I wanted to be honest. And there's a chapter, if you haven't read the book, where 
I make a point of finding something I can say something negative about because I think that the book would be unrealistic without acknowledging that I'm not just this altruistic person who values all music equally, but I think you have to understand that that's also a collaboration that you're just not willing to participate in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my criticism of, of John Bon Jovi is that I can't relate to somebody swinging for the fences every time, you know, like these like bombastic, anthemic, that type of music just doesn't work on me. It just doesn't seem, it's, it's cathartic and larger than life for a lot of people. And maybe it's really hard to, for me to fathom what the connection is, but there's obviously a connection there for a lot of people that, you know, at the very least it entertains somebody. And like, how can you argue with that? Like having somebody have three minutes where they're a little bit freer of worry, you know, like that's, that's generally not a, like something that deserves to be criticized. But I felt like Bon Jovi could take a hit, like maybe being made fun of in my book a little oh. bit. <laughs> <laughs> another theme throughout your book is nostalgia I feel like you do a really good job balancing just the basic truth of the music that hits us at a formative age being important to us through life while also kind of battling against like any impulse towards sentimentality and I was curious if you consider yourself in general a nostalgic person and if that's something that you wrestle with I, I really don't think of myself as a nostalgic person um there's a comfort level that comes with listening to, say, The Replacements, for example, for me, because it did hit me at that formative moment, that, that most open window that we all have in our lives. I think it's like scientifically proven you're like kind of more receptive to those types of epiphanies about the world at that moment. But I really don't feel like I'm the kind of person that... that feels like I need to fight to hang on to it. I think it's there and I don't, I feel like there's a regressive kind of impulse a lot of people have to A, reimagine the past as something more glorious than it was and to act out of fear of the future of change in a way that makes them want to wrap their arms more tightly around their past. Mm -hmm. You know, in music... I think it just makes people kind of close ranks and, and shut off their mind. And, and I just would argue that it's worth it to kind of dig yourself out of that rut if you can, because there's so much great stuff to be exposed to and to find your way into. And it's okay for it not to be for you. It's obviously there's like music being made by teenagers for teenagers. There's music being made for, for specific groups, but when you can find your way into something like that and appreciate something about it, be excited about it, have your expectations subverted by something that creates a new expectation of what you can ask for from a song. Uh, I mean, that's just, that's just a great thing. Mm. I wanted to ask a similar question in regards more specifically to Wilco and the records you make and your career. Um, Last year, you did the anniversary shows around Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, which seems like an uncharacteristic move for you guys. And I was curious if there was anything you noticed about those shows that felt different or any anything in the audience, because I'm not sure when exactly the timeline was of writing the book, but I was thinking about that in the context of the music that matters a lot to people and their relationships with it, which 
I feel like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is probably one of those formative records for a lot of people in your audience. For sure. When we did those shows, I was happy that we weren't doing more of them because it isn't something that we've done a lot of. I mean, as as a, a band that's been around for 30 years almost, I think the world really wants you to accept a role as like a legacy act or something like that. And understandably, there probably is a sizable portion of the audience that would be just as happy if we were out just playing only songs from those records that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s when they fell in love with the band, you know. But I also don't think that that's all of the audience and partially because because we haven't just surrendered to doing that. I see younger people, I see people in the audience that are accepting of the, the band thinking of itself as an ongoing concern, <laughs> as an ongoing creative entity. And we see ourselves as that. And, and we try and honor that by leaning into our new material when we go out and, and play. Having said all of that, I was glad we did those shows and I was glad we weren't doing more. But the thing that was really amazing about those shows is just feeling that sense that you were completing a circuit or something. There was a feeling in the audience that I don't know if I've ever really felt before. Maybe it was nostalgia. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it, it was really emotional and really powerful. And I felt a lot of gratitude that I was in a position to make that happen for an audience and and to feel it myself on stage that oh this is this is something that we made and it's worth honoring it in a way that acknowledges where it has landed in other people's lives it was so emotional there's just a lot of energy with the audience that felt almost solemn in a weird way and and I, I thought it was very, very moving uh, nightly. And that's part of the reason I don't think I would be able to handle doing it 30 shows in a row or something like that. It's interesting hearing you talking about like the dual feelings you were experiencing during those shows because you've also just put out a Wilco record that texturally and sonically doesn't really sound like any music you've put out before. And part of that is because of Kate LeBond who produced it, which I feel like is a kind of rare thing for Wilco to have an outside producer like that. And I was curious if there's anything you learned from that process or from working with Kate LeBon on this record that going forward will affect your creative process. Well, I think having a friend and a uh, artist in your life like Kate always is going to teach you things and push you in a direction that is open to discovery. And and I like to think that Wilco has basically tried to do that our whole career, look at each record as a different process, kind of know that a different process is going to result in a different record. But um, I think it was an affirmation that it, I don't know, that there is reward in not just doing it the same way every time. And, mm-hmm. and bringing somebody in like Kate was just like, in, I think, was inspired and it would have in a lot of cases I think it would have been something very hard for a a band that has been around for 30 years to just hand over the reins but I was really proud of the fact that that's still the overall consensus in the band is that that's a worthwhile risk to 
embrace a different way of doing it in the hopes that the creative act will lead you to something new and lead you to some discovery of some way the band can sound that you could never have pictured without that specific choice and those specific parameters being uh, laid out for yourselves. There's a line in the book I found really profound where you say something along the lines of, I've outlived my dreams. And I think it probably resonates for anyone who winds up in a career doing what they wanted to do when they were young. But I also think that it can't be completely true because you managed to stay so creative and so restless. And I was curious what you dream about now, what you feel like you'd still like to accomplish with your work. Um, my dream is that I deserve what I have. You know, my dream is that I get to keep doing what I love to do. When people talk about those types of dreams, like the ones we have when we're young and want to picture ourselves getting to do something like being in a rock band or, you know, or writing about music because it's the thing we want to do and we're excited to do it. And then you get to do it. But I don't know how you form new exalted dreams like that, you know. And to be honest, I think that I learned from my own experience that the, the actual dream itself was attainable because it was pretty human scaled and realistic. You know, it was like a lot of people could do what I felt satisfied by getting to do. And it's like getting to put records out, have a gig and a van and a way to get there. You know, that was, geez, everything that I saw in the world that looked like something you could do, that was the best. That was the best thing. But I don't like say have a dream of having a number one record or, or winning a Grammy or any of the, you know, like, some things I've done, some things I've not done, or things that are within the realm of possibility that could be done or not done, they just don't enter my mind that much. The only thing I can think of that would make me happy is to be able to continue my work, the work that I love to do. So most of my decisions, realistically, on a business level, on an artistic level, are based on what gives me the best chance of getting to do that. And to me, that's part of what makes me restless is because I think the best chance of getting to continue to do what I do is to stay interesting and stay interested and inspired. And I know luckily that's something I still care about a lot. Mm. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been just an awesome conversation. Mm. Um, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Sam. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Mark Yoshizumi, Elia Einhorn, and Katie Lau at 3DB are our producers. Ryan Domble is our showrunner, and Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. Jeff Tweedy was recorded by Tom Schick at The Loft in Chicago. Big thanks to Mark Greenberg. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.